We are this week starting a, uh, a new sermon series. It's going to be on the Bible, which is, which is a thing that we like to do every once in a while. But, but when, I, when I say it's going to be about the Bible, uh, what I mean is we're going to try and do the whole Bible, like, like the entire thing. Not, not verse by verse, uh, but we're going to try and, and do the whole story of Scripture. Uh, from beginning to end, kind of the Bible at 30,000 feet, to get an overview of it. Because if you're going to understand any piece of it really well, it's extraordinarily helpful to understand the whole context of it. Uh, And this difference between having a piece of knowledge and having the whole of knowledge is something that we're going to talk about today uh, as a sort of introduction uh, to, to the sermon series. Holy Spirit, we do pray uh, that you would come into our midst this morning, that you yourself would be our teacher. We ask for the very presence of God in this place. We pray, Lord, uh, that you would minister to us and change us as we need to be changed this morning. I pray, Lord, in particular for a move of freedom this morning that you would free our minds to understand uh, reality, uh, reality in the world and reality in our lives, uh, to be humble thinkers and confident thinkers. In Jesus' name, amen. I think life can be so hard. I just think it can be excruciatingly difficult, and I think it can often be sad beyond the telling. It's also fantastically beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And it's rich, and it's meaningful. It's gorgeous. It is good to the core. And I can't stand the way people treat it sometimes because, you know, the truth is that life can be different things at different times. It depends what peace you seize upon. determines how you understand it. I struggle daily, I think, to understand and to appreciate life as a whole, in its whole sweep, not to get crushed by just the sad bits, but to appreciate and be empowered by the beautiful arc of life. I can't stand the way people treat life sometimes, and, and I can't stand the way people treat the truth about life sometimes. And in one way or another, a lot of of what I do is try and and just kind of fight for uh, a truth that is coherent and empowering and, well, you know, true. That's an important discipline. Here's one of the main problems uh, in in the world, I, I think. People don't see the whole They don't see the entirety of things. They fixate on just pieces of things, pieces of issues or pieces of stories. And this leads to distortions in understanding, which lead to distortions in experience. In some way, the way way you go about understanding life and the way you go about understanding truth kind of determines your experience of life and your experience of truth in some way, to some extent. You know that old pledge, the traditional pledge that you would hear in courtrooms? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, 
and nothing but the truth, which is a very sensible pledge for someone who's about to testify to the truth of something. So is if you testify a bit of the truth, but not the whole truth, then the jury really is not going to have an accurate picture of what reality is. And so some sensible person, I don't know where it comes from, but some sensible person long ago said, oh no, you got to promise to, help, to tell the whole truth uh, when you get up there, to the best of your ability to say everything that is uh, pertinent. Uh, that's a, nice, that's a nice, nice oath in a courtroom, and I think in some way it's a nice oath in life as well. Um, in one of uh, his many debates with experts in his age, with the religious or the legal or the political experts of his age, Jesus said to them, if you hold to my teachings, then you will be my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus was a big proponent of truth. You know, it's like you, you, you need to dedicate yourself to seeing the reality of things. You need to dedicate yourself to seeing the reality of the world. You need to dedicate yourself to seeing the reality of Scripture, which helps you understand the whole reality about God. You need to see the truth about yourself as well. Jesus was a revealer. He was dedicated to revealing reality. But I like the way he said it. Like, if, if you're my disciples, then, you know, eventually the truth will, will set you free. Just uncomplicating that a little bit. At the bottom level, Jesus is saying truth takes discipline. There's a discipline of truth. There's a skill of truth that mature people uh, reach. You can't just open a newspaper and expect to get truth. You have to develop your own personal ability, your own personal capacity to find it in the swirl of knowledge that's coming at you in, in any given day. Um, Jesus argued a lot. He argued more than he argued with anyone else. He argued with, with experts, with experts and teachers, uh, with, with professors, which points to what I call the problem of expertise or the problem of specialists. I think in, in our society today, we, we are a society of specialists. There is a vast amount of knowledge in the world today. We know more about more stuff than we've ever known before. This is called the information age. Knowledge is exploding. By rights, we should be understanding the world and ourselves better than we ever have. But something weird is happening. Instead of understanding the world, instead of understanding life, instead of understanding ourselves, we become specialists in a certain field of knowledge. There are now too many facts for any one individual to know. Nobody can know the whole of it, and so we become specialists. We just know little bits of it, but we know those little bits really, really, really well. And then when we have a problem, what do we do? We consult the specialists. But the challenge of that methodology is if I'm getting a little specialty knowledge here and a little specialty knowledge here and a little specialty knowledge here, how does it all tie together? It's, it's difficult to navigate life by special fact to special fact to special fact. You need the whole map, don't you? You need the whole map. And uh, we're familiar with this challenge in fields like medicine. Right? In medicine, you can't scratch your nose without seeing a specialist. Well, right, it's, it seems sometimes, and I, and I have 
primary care physician friends who complain to me that the only role of the primary care physician is to send you to a specialist, is to figure out what specialist that you have to see. But what happens? Uh, what happens is that there's, there are instances in which a person has maybe multiple issues going on, or one specialist will, dis will prescribe this medicine and another specialist this medicine, and those medicines interact in a gnarly way. And so we've had to develop like medical care coordinators and, and stuff like that to make sure that we don't accidentally kill people. And there are lots of studies out there today. There's a hospital science that's all about how to coordinate you know, specialists. And, and now doctors are saying things like, you really have to be your own advocate in healthcare. You need to educate yourself about medicine in order to navigate medicine. Well, that's hard. <laughs> because there's an awful lot of medical knowledge out there. Anyway, specialism can defeat truth in, in a weird, counterintuitive sort of way. And one of the things that's happening, because there's so much knowledge out there in the world, is that we're packing knowledge into silos. You know what a silo is? We don't have any silos in, in Hawaii anymore, maybe once on the sugar plantations, but they're sort of very narrow, tall storage bins for grain. They look missile silos, right? And, and when you get um, knowledge into silos, you have one narrow band of knowledge here and another narrow band of knowledge here, but they, they, don't, they don't communicate. Um, this happens in so many different fields. Uh, I'm, I'm a physics geek. I love science. I love physics. Um, I'm constantly reading uh, in that field. Uh, one of the things I can't stand about the state of physics today is that it's a bit grandiose. Have you heard of the theory of everything? Every, every once in a while you read about it in newspapers. Do you know what the theory of everything is? The theory of everything is a name given to physicists, really high-end mathematical physicists, not experimental ones. These are guys that just think about math. Their effort to come up with a way to explain gravity and quantum physics at the same time, and the other universal or nuclear forces at the same time. The problem is that gravity, which is, has, is a known force, it's been known for hundreds of years, we still have no idea how it works. No idea. Which, you know, which, if I were a physicist, would make me very humble. Um, but we have no idea how gravity works. We're trying to come up with a way to explain it that is not... Um, uh, that does not run counter to the way that we explain subatomic particles and things like that. In other words, we're just trying to fit gravity into the way that we understand the universe. And we've called that the theory of everything. That's not the theory of everything. That's a theory of gravity. Or have you heard of the God particle? Yeah, What's this uh, nuclear accelerator they have in, in, uh, in, in Europe. And they take subatomic particles and they smash them into... Uh, other subatomic particles, and they see what comes out of it. And it's very, very hard to do, and it costs billions and billions of dollars. And, and they're searching for a, guard, a God particle. People theorized that uh, there was a sort of subatomic particle, which is really just a vibration of energy uh, that explains why stuff has mass. We haven't figured out why the universe ways why things are heavy. We don't know why that is uh, because, well, complicated uh, reasons. And so this particle, which they think exists in every atom, is, is the one that has weight. That, that's basically it. I've, I've not done it justice. 
and they call that the God particle. Really? The God particle? Because as soon as we find that particle, somebody is going to come up with a diet to eliminate it. But man, it makes great headlines, and it probably got them a, a lot of, of funding. You know, I, I, I could go on. Media, the way that we get news in the media today, I think is so siloed, right? You can determine what news you want by which channel you watch, by which network you want. And you know it's going to be biased, so you just go to the one you favor. And I'm not sure it's educational. It might just be reinforcing uh, the bias you already have. But, you know, media people have to entertain, they have to get viewers, so they're competing not to educate you, but to please you. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to get a dispassionate explanation of political issues in our world today. Anyway, Jesus was a huge proponent of thinking for yourself and not letting experts tell you what to think, which is why he argued so often with the religious and the political experts of, of his day. Thinking for yourself in Jesus' time was a more revolutionary concept than it is even today, as we have a rather individualistic culture, and, and he did not. But you see, time and again, Jesus drilling his followers on the, the skill of truth the skill of really putting things together for yourself. Who do the crowds say that I am? He asked the disciples one afternoon. They said, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And then he says, oh yeah, but who do you say that I am? Okay, that's what the crowd thinks, guys. Now let me teach you a skill. Let me teach you how to think for yourself apart from the crowd. Let me teach you how to think apart from popular pressure and popular sentiment. And that's when Peter said, I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the Son of God. And then Jesus said an important thing. He said, way to go. Way to go, Simon Peter. Uh, because you didn't come up with this on your own. God revealed this to you. When you think for yourself, you can listen clearly to God. Uh, Peter didn't always hit home runs, but that was a good day for him. In Jesus' basic moral teaching, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous moral teaching probably in world history, uh, is this, this string of moral teachings. He says, you have heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, it's sinful just to be angry at somebody. And if you call someone a fool, you're in dangers of the fires of judgment. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, even if you left after a woman in your heart, that's as good as adultery. What was Jesus doing there? He was discussing facts about the law. Yeah, there's a commandment that says don't murder, and there's a commandment that says don't commit adultery. But he was looking for the meaning behind those facts. He was putting it all together. And basically he was saying, you know, I've, I've read through that stuff, and I've studied it. And you know what I conclude? I think there's a God who's trying to get something across to us. And I think what that God is trying to get across to us is that it's important to be good, loving, generous, righteous people. And if that's true, then the goal isn't just to keep from sleeping with someone else's wife. The goal is to treat everybody unselfishly and lovingly and honorably. 
think about it, put it together. And that's what made Jesus a revolutionary moral teacher. Think for yourself. Don't just memorize what the experts tell you. Get to the meaning behind the knowledge. Jesus had a way of, of not falling into what I call issue traps, not getting sucked into a silo. And the scripture that we have today um, is just one example of the many conversations that Jesus had about that. Uh, it's from Matthew. You hand me my uh, brochure there, honey. You find it on the back of your program. It's also going to be up on the big board. Or you could follow along in your smartphone Bibles. Or if you're really, really righteous, your hard copy Bibles. Rochelle, hold up your hard copy Bible. Old school right there. From Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went out. The Pharisees are the experts of the day went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. All right, so experts uh, oftentimes, uh, in order to be seen as experts, their goal is not to promote knowledge. Their goal is to defeat opponents, is to defend, defend their point of view. And the Pharisees were no different in this regard. They're, they want to trap Jesus with some clever debate. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. The Herodians were a certain political party, let's say, who uh, were supported by talking head experts. Is this sounding familiar to anybody? Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But they sent these debaters to Jesus. Teacher, or rabbi, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. <laughs> Lathering it on thick. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Oh my, here's the setup. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So this was a hot-button political issue of the day uh, because Caesar was a Roman. The Romans had invaded the land of Palestine, had invaded the nation of Israel, and they were basically dictating, they were politically oppressing and suppressing the Jews. And that made for a very dicey political situation. On the one hand, you wanted to be a patriot. You wanted to say, don't tread on me. Um, you know, Romans, this is our land, not your land. It's not fair that, that, that you're here. It was sort of a, an early debate on immigration policy in the sense, or voter rights or something like that. And, uh, and the Herodians... Uh, were of the political party that basically they were Jews who had aligned with Caesar because the Romans were, were propping them up in society. So basically, they said, oh, Jesus, you're a man of the people. You're a man of the people. You don't, re you don't respect people just because they have a lot of power. In other words, you're not going to kowtow to the Romans, so tell us, should we pay taxes to this dirty oppressor? And if Jesus had said, if Jesus said yes, pay taxes to him, uh, then the Pharisees would have gone back to the Jews and saying, he's selling you out. And if he would have said, don't pay taxes to Caesar, that would be wrong, then the Herodians would have gone to the Roman soldiers and say, you better kill this guy, he's inciting rebellion. So that was the trap. That was the trap. No matter what he said, they had him. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, you fakers, you're just faking it. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. 
And so they whipped out a coin. Some versions of the story, they're actually on the temple grounds here, uh, which means they should not have had a coin with an image on it. That was a violation of scriptural law, but Jesus is just toying with them at this point. Show me the coin. So they brought out a coin, a denarius, and he asked, whose image is on it? Whose picture is on that coin? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they said. The head of Caesar would have been imprinted on the coin the same way that, I don't know, the head of, you know, Washington or or Lincoln would be on our coins. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, which is just lovely. He's like, I'm not going to get sucked into this pointless political debate. There are larger issues. If you're really trying to understand God, you have to get out of your silo. You have to get out of your issue trap and think for yourself. You have to expand your mind a little bit. So I don't really care who that coin goes to. You know why? That coin wasn't minted in heaven. It's just this brilliant way of replying to the story. Snaps for Jesus. I listened to the presidential debates this past year, and never once did I get uh, an answer that was as clever as this. Jesus was smooth. That same day, the Sadducees, who are another body of experts and political elite, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So these were like the humanists of their day. They were the religious humanists. They were people who respected the God idea, who respected, you know, the value of religion and stuff like that. But they didn't believe in eternity or resurrection or anything supernatural. Does that sound like anybody? that you might know in society, the more things change, the more things stay the same. So the Sadducees, these experts, came to Jesus, and, uh, and they had a question. Teacher, they said, So Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, this is actually a part of the Old Testament law. Like, if, if your brother dies, uh, he has a wife and kids, then you take that wife and those children into your household. You marry that woman. Uh, and what that is, it's a way to promote, well, I mean, welfare. I mean, they, they didn't have any other system uh, of doing that. They were these nomadic people. And so it was really a way for widows and their children to get taken care of. That was the intent. But the experts have turned the law into something different. Moses told us that a man dies without having children. His brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Then the same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at this resurrection that you're talking about, whose wife will she be of the seven, since they were all married to her? Gotcha, Jesus! Gotcha. This is, uh, this is a great example of siloed knowledge because the law really wasn't about resurrection. It wasn't a way to explain resurrection. It was a way to make sure people got taken care of. Jesus replied, You are an error, error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Slam! At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, since you hosers brought it up, have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is uh, not a super good argument for resurrection, 
because he's taking a verse of scripture, I'm the God of Abraham, but I'm not the God of the dead, so Abraham must be alive, so there must be life after death. Boom! But that's not really what this verse is about either. You know, Jesus is basically answering them in kind, saying, if you want to play that game, I'll beat you at that game, because if you debate worthless knowledge, it's a worthless debate. You know, you're not trying to get to the truth, so I'll just, I won't either. When the crowds heard, it, heard this, they were astonished as, at his teaching. People were always astonished at Jesus' teaching because when he talked, he had a way of making things coalesce together. He had a way of clarifying all of life, all of Scripture, all the truth about God. He didn't get stuck in little issue traps. He didn't get stuck in little silos. He was expansive. You know, he was a generalist in the best sense of, of that word. He punctured the issue traps. Um, and we see Jesus do this over and over again. You know, he always got to the question behind the question. By my reading of the gospel, Jesus has asked any number of questions. Only once in the entire gospel does he answer the question he was asked. And that was a practical consideration when the disciples, having failed to cast out a demon, asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? And he actually answered them. He gave them a straight answer. But otherwise, he was always answering the question behind the question or changing the nature of the debate as he did here. Are we talking about tax policy? Is, is that really what we're talking about when you ask me? Are you just trying to prove that you're right and I'm wrong? What's really going on here? So here's a question about tax policy. Go suck on that. I'm sure he said it more nicely, but that's how my translation of the Greek reads. Are we, t are we really talking about marriage politics here? Or do you doubt that God, the living God who made the universe, has the power to reanimate dead souls? Really? I mean, really? Because talking about marriage is probably not the best way to decide if God can recreate dead people. Duh. Duh. So let me ask you a different question. Do you think God is the God of life, or do you think death defeats God? And if you can't answer that, hang around for another few months, and I'll give you a demonstration. Jesus was good at stuff like that. When he expressed truth, it, was, it had something to do with the, the whole truth. And we see this uh, continue throughout Scripture. Because the truth is always assailed by narrow mindsets, Paul writes to the Colossians, the church in Colossia, in, in, in chapter 2 of his epistle to the Colossians. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. In the early days of Christianity, particularly in the Greek world, in the Gentile world, uh, beyond Jerusalem, uh, Christianity took hold. People came to faith and churches were planted. But immediately there was this, uh, this, uh, this social movement to uh, mix Christianity with the mindsets and the religion that were popular in those places. What was popular at that time was sort of a dualistic sort of religion. The most popular religion in the Roman world had to do with sort of a are you guys familiar with Manichaeism or uh, this idea of Zoroastrianism, the, the sort of Eastern mysticism which says anything that's physical is evil and anything that is purely spiritual is good. And so the point is to become purely spiritual 
and uh, to release spiritual power in, as it's held captive in physical form. You can go do a big study on this. Do a Google search if you want. But, but people were trying to accept Christianity but mix it with that sort of dualistic mindset. And so you get these debates about the nature of Christ. You know, no, Jesus, Jesus can't be the Son of God. He can't be by nature God because Jesus had physical form. So what was happening was that it looked like this man Jesus was walking the earth, but actually he was just an apparition. If you'd put his hand on him, you wouldn't have felt anything. He was like a ghost, and this became a, a, a big debate, actually. Or, you know, yes, we accept Christianity, but it depends what you eat. You know, you can only eat special foods. You have to be a vegetarian or you can't drink wine or something like that because you have to keep your body pure in order to make it ascend to the spiritual plane. And Paul actually had to address this again and again in his uh, epistles. This was why the Council of Nicaea met to, to canonize the New Testament to decide which books were going to be included because a lot of people were writing false gospels that mixed this sort of super mystical dualism with the teachings of Christianity. And that's why these so-called Gnostic Gospels are not excluded in Scripture. It's very fashionable today to say the Bible is just a crock because there were lots of other legitimate Gospels out there that didn't get included. Have you heard this? Actually, there was a very good reason for that, a very good historical reason that the National Geographic Channel has seemed to have forgotten it does its documentaries on how the Bible came together. I love being alive in this age uh, because we know more about more stuff than we ever have, and it's easier to find out what we know. I just love it that I can sit down at a computer and with a few keystrokes just discover vast troves of knowledge. I can read papers by eminent scientists anytime I want to. It is so easy to get your questions answered. Not only that, but to go to the raw data and to think through it yourself. I just love that. I love being alive in the information age. I was born at the right time. I really was. And I just can't wait to see what the future brings in terms of information and learning. But I have found that almost nobody takes advantage of the situation in which we live. Almost nobody wants to know the whole truth anymore. Almost nobody bothers to learn. What is that? What is that in human nature that makes us want to have expertise instead of having truth? What is that? Because it's never been easier to get to the truth of things. It drives me nuts. That's what I would say when I just, I hate how people treat the truth of life. It just drives me nuts. It's like, really? That's what you think about that? Because just do a Google search and, and come up with, with better answers. Of course, not every Google church gives you back truth, right? Google searches give you back all sorts of static as well. But, but you can find it. So when I think about politics, I think about this uh, a lot. There's a lot of debate today about social policy, you know, because um, our, our current president doesn't, doesn't sound particularly generous in some of the things that he's saying. I'll just leave it there. Um, what is, I'll put it this way, what is the greatest alleviator of poverty in world history? I'm sorry? 
education, charity. Is that what you said? Charity? Who said capitalism? There is only one answer. Capitalism. By far. By far. I have a PhD in political science. I had a master in economic development. But you don't really need that in order to understand this. Before the, the coming of capitalism in the, like, let's say, the 18th century, less than 10%, give or take, of the world's population lived above the poverty level. Uh, and in the last 20 years, we have reduced the global poverty level by a billion people. And never before has the world been so rich. You know, and I'm not like, I'm not a money grubber, but I'm a capitalist in the sense that this is the socioeconomic system that has worked best for the human race. And, and therefore, I, I, I am in favor of it. This has nothing to do with Jesus and, and what the scripture teaches me, except that I don't like people being poor. I don't like people being poor. Uh, since since the, uh, 1981 or so, the number of poor people in China has been reduced by 680 million people. Their poverty rate has gone from 84% to 10%. Why? Well, because they threw away communism and they started pursuing free market politics and economics. This, this, is, this is not a religious statement. This is just sort of a practical kind of thing uh, that, that I'm telling you. So when I think about justice in the world, justice for poor people, right, I, government policy and, you know, how, how generous we're going to be is, is a small percentage of what is working to empower desperately poor people. We need to empower poor people with access to markets and maybe micro-lending to start their businesses and to get them where they should be. Government is not the solution to that, but government can be a problem. Bad government can take away uh, people's rights and the ability to produce for themselves. You know, so that's, that's one way. I, and I don't think, I'm not advocating one political party over the other or anything like that. I'm just saying nobody talks about that. You know, nobody talks, when we debate social policy, we don't, we don't talk about that. What are corporations? Corporations are big organizations that are impersonal and trying to screw the little guy. Well, corporations are collections of greedy people. <laughs> Often, some of them are really good. But it's just not part of the debate, you know, right? I, I'm just saying it's not part of the debate. It's not part of the debate. And it, and it probably should be. How do we empower people uh, to take care of themselves, to trade, and to produce? Because one of the greatest victories in, in human history has been empowering people to do just that. Capitalism is uh, the ability to collect resources from diffuse places into one big bucket and then to use those resources to do big things. That's all it is. So uh, I'm all for that. That's what I think about when I think about politics. You know what I think about when I think about immigration? Uh, I think about justice. I think, I think about the same sort of thing. And immigration has been a huge issue in recent politics. And it's offending people. It is, it is driving people out of churches. Um, and because it's just such a hot button issue, I think it's just a big issue trap. 
I think what we should do as human beings is to try to take care of as many people as possible, is to try and, and create the, the broadest justice for the greatest number of, of people uh, possible. That's what I think. Now, is, is uh, immigration policy, it's receiving anybody who comes to our shores, is that the best way to do it? Or do we need to you know, have rules about it? I think this is a you know, render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar sort of, of thing. Um, it's, it's just been conducted very, very poorly. Um, I don't know if you've been following this debate, but uh, in the last uh, Obama administration, uh, President Obama issued executive orders to his immigration uh, officials through Homeland Security and said, essentially, don't enforce deportation policies against illegal immigrants, particularly if minors are involved. Don't enforce the law. And that offended a lot of people. I don't know if it offended you, but it offended a lot of people, and I can at least understand why it offended a lot of people. He's basically telling his border police not to follow the law. And people along the border, you probably remember this when you're reading the newspapers, some of them got pretty upset about that. What do you mean? Illegal aliens don't have to follow the law, but I do? That's interesting. And people like one Donald Trump made a lot of political capital with that, with that issue, with that tension, right? Uh, he, he does not speak about it sensitively, but that's the situation in which, into which he, he was speaking. Does it make sense to have sort of a rational, methodical immigration policy? Probably does. You know what else makes sense to me? Handling immigration problems at their source. I mean, if immigrants aren't just our problem when they show up on our shores, I think we should probably care about crises in countries that are creating all of these refugees. You know? Maybe that affects the way you debate international policy. Um, Syria is a big issue right now because there's a civil war in Syria. Quite famously, Barack Obama said to uh, Bashir Assad, the dictator of Syria, if you use chemical weapons against your own people, we're going we're gonna to end you. We're going to put a stop to that. Bashir Assad used chemical weapons against the rebels, and Obama ordered the Americans to leave town. And he didn't do anything about it. Uh, and civil war just erupted freely then and created a lot of refugees. Um, I don't think it's necessarily uh, a good idea to just intervene in countries willy-nilly, but I think American policy helped create that refugee crisis. Now what are we going to do with the refugees? But nobody talks about it that way, you know? Nobody talks about it holistically. This is stuff I think about because I'm an old political scientist. And you, I, I'm not encouraging you to think like I am. What I'm encouraging you to think about is that there's a big picture out there and these issues that are driving people apart and taking people you know, out of churches and politicizing churches and making us yell at one another. I just, I can't stand the way people treat the truth. I can't stand it when people fall into issue traps. I think we need to get the bigger picture. The biggest moral and political issue of our day has to do with sexuality, right? It has to do with 
um, gay rights and gay marriage and civil unions and stuff like that, and that's just tearing churches apart uh, left and right. Um, and, and I don't think that issue is talked about with, with even a tiny bit of integrity in, in the popular media or in popular debates, you know? Uh, if there's one thing people believe about uh, the science of sexuality today, it's that scientists have discovered that homosexuality is genetic, it's congenital, it's inborn, right? You know that the science has basically proven exactly the opposite? What the science has proven, and even the earliest twin studies do this. Have you heard about the twin studies? How many of you believe that if your identical twin is gay, you have a very high percentage of being gay yourself? How many of you have heard that? That's a very popular conception out there. Actually, the twin studies show that the correlation is probably below like 7%. Some studies say as low as like 4%, 2%. Identical twins, if your twin is gay, you have a slightly better than average chance of, of being gay yourself. But we've taught people um, that sexuality is determined for you by your genes. Um, and science has shown that it's not. But science has shown a really, really interesting thing. And this is something I think people should understand. It's that heterosexuality is not necessarily genetically determined either. The truth of sexuality is that it's very rich. It's very complicated. It's a more flexible and fungible is the technical word. More than ever, we are understanding that we get to choose what we do with our sexuality. And that depending on a variety of factors, it can be shaped one way or the other. Now, the interesting bit of that for me is the choice bit. Don't get me wrong. I don't think people choose their sexuality. Sometimes they do. Sometimes. But very, very rarely. You know, like maybe in very competitive, competitive violet prison scenarios, people might be forced to, you know, and there's actually studies on that. Uh, but, but by and large, we find ourselves stumbling upon our sexuality, our preferences, our orientations. I'm old enough to remember when the debate about gay rights was about preference. Is anybody else old enough to remember that? The early gay rights movement? Um, basically, we find ourselves stumbling upon it, and then the world is telling us whatever you stumbled upon is, is determined for you. you know? but, but that's not true. I mean, that's never been true, which is why we have so many teachings on sexual morality in Scripture. Even if you didn't choose where you're at, the good news is that you can choose your sexual future. You can make your own choices. Even if it's a struggle for you, you can get to a place that you think is healthier than the one that you're at currently. That's the truth of the situation, and the science backs us up on that. I've given sermons on this before. I'll probably give another one soon. But I am a big proponent of sexual freedom. Not in the sense that it's often used in the media, but in the sense that make choices for yourself. Make choices for yourself. You're a human being, not a computer program. You get to choose where you're headed. And I, I, um, I find distasteful the culture that says, no, 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 you're a program. This is determined for you. You know, it's inborn. 
whatever you think you like, you, can, you cannot change. You have to follow your impulses. That's, that's not good for heterosexuals. It's not good for homosexuals. It's not good for pedophiles. It's just, no. You understand what I'm saying? We'll talk about that more some other time. Um, bad science out there. The story of Christianity is really what I want to talk about. I'm just talking about these issue traps in order to kind of get our minds to be flexible a little bit. It's fashionable to say all sorts of things about the story of Christianity or the story of the Bible, and that's what we're going to study in the next eight weeks or so. This is all just preparation for that. Um, Christianity gets criticized by, in a lot of different directions. And I've used this analogy before. See if you follow me. I call it the problem student in the classroom analogy. Ima imagine that you're a substitute teacher and that you walk into a classroom uh, one day and you've never been there before, but you're trying to get to know the students and you're doing attendance and uh, one of the students is absent. Little, little, little chemo is not, is not here today. And so you're like, chemo, chemo. Oh, oh, chemo's not here. That's too bad. I wanted to get to know you as a substitute, somebody tell me about chemo. And, and then you start hearing opinions about chemo from the classroom. Somebody raises his hand and said, uh, chemo's, yeah, and he's not much to look at. He is stick thin. I mean, he's the skinniest guy you've ever seen in your life. And then another kid raises her hand and said, uh, plus, I can't stand his pot belly. He's just so fat, he should wear better clothes. And then another uh, kid says, yeah, chemo is freakishly tall. He's a little bit scary that way. And then another kid says, yeah, plus his little legs just dangle over the edge of the chair. They can't even reach the ground. And then somebody says, well, chemo is really dark-skinned, if you know what I mean. It's one of those darkies. And then somebody says, and he's sickly pale. He really needs to get some sun. Some guy says, his clothes are just smelly rags. And then somebody else says, plus, who's he trying to impress with all those fancy threads? Somebody says, chemo never says a word all day. He's quiet and uppity. He won't interact with the rest of us. And then another kid says, plus, he's a total brown noser. He's always trying to answer every question that you ask and to prove how much he knows. What are we learning about chemo? We're learning nothing about chemo. What are we learning about the classroom? They're sick, right? We asked a question about chemo, and we got some answers. But because those answers were so contradictory, we've come to a conclusion about the classroom. Uh, and the conclusion we've come to about the class of kids is that they're really not concerned with the truth of chemo. They're concerned with rejecting chemo, right? You understand? I think this is how the world talks about uh, Christianity. These days, it's cool to accuse Christianity of being bogus and bad. But the accusations are so contradictory with one another that it's really interesting. The problem with Christianity. The problem with Christianity is that Christianity is just a, a fairy tale for people who are afraid of struggle and death. It's just a myth that somebody came up with to comfort us about death. Also, the problem about Christianity is that it terrorizes people with taunts of hell and an eternally damned afterlife. Well, which is it? Is it a comforting myth for everyone, or is it terrorism? 
It's contradictory. Uh, you know, religion is nothing more than human society's need for a moral regulator and a peacekeeper. Uh, religion is a product of social evolution. It's for ensuring that people could get along together without conflict, right? We, we imagine a good God who wants peace because that keeps us at peace with one another. And so, as a matter of social evolution, you can explain why people have developed religions. Right? So religion is a peacekeeper. Uh, it's an argument made in a, in a famous piece by best-selling author Jared Diamond. On the other hand, you know what the problem with religion is? Religion causes wars. Have you heard that? So which is it? Does religion cause war or does religion enforce peace? Religion, you might hear, is just biological. Uh, we have a God gene. Have you, have you heard about the God gene? Oh yeah, people are researching this. We are genetically programmed to believe in God. Uh, and genetics, of course, come from evolution. So there's, there's an advantage to us being genetically programmed to believe in God. It alleviates some of our stress about hell and makes us less aggressive and stuff like that. So it's biologically advantageous and therefore genetically determined. Uh, it brings a sense of, of well-being to us, this God gene. On the other hand, you hear today that mentally healthy people reject religion, that the only sane thing to do is to be, you know, an atheist or an agnostic. Have you heard that as well? Contradiction. 100 million years of evolution has shown us that we need spirituality, we need a God gene to be healthy. So the healthiest thing to do, the sanest thing to do is to reject God and think for yourself. They don't fit, do they? The problem with Christianity is that it stifles free choice. Christianity is always trying to dictate what people should do. But uh, the problem with God is that he doesn't intervene against evil in the world. So on the one hand, he's a dictator. On the other hand, he doesn't intervene enough. He's two hands off. Which is it? It's two contradictory sorts of criticisms. All religions are really one, you know. There's, there's really no fundamental difference between religions. That's one criticism uh, of those of us who would call ourselves uh, Christians. On the other hand, the problem with Christianity is that it insists on believing different things than the other religions do. It insists on being different. So which is it? Are all religions the same or unfairly different? You get criticisms from all sorts of directions. And what does that tell you about Christianity? Nothing. What does it tell you about the environment commenting on Christianity? That really it's not interested in the truth about Christianity, it's just interested in rejecting it. That's sort of a holistic way uh, of looking at it. What I'd like to do is to talk about uh, Christianity and the Bible in in a holistic manner um, from, from beginning to end. And what I've done this morning is just try to, you know, tweak your brains a little bit so that we go into this examination of the story and God with humankind uh, with an open mind and we don't fall into issue traps. And I know some of you have been suffering recently with some issue traps, you know, because there are lots of heated debates out there in the world about sexuality, about politics, about culture, uh, about, you know, about gender roles, about education, about justice. We need to just take a breath. We need to just take a breath. 
We need to not fall into those traps. And we need to investigate God as he actually is. We need to investigate the world as it actually is. Not how the experts tell us that it is. I'm, I'm a widely read man. I'm geeky. I'm a, I'm a Google search nut. But I don't know it all. But I'm a seeker. I'm a searcher. And I have a nose for truth, a skill for truth that has been developed in me because I follow Jesus. And he taught me to do that. He taught me to think for myself and to be free and not a slave, not captive to the hollow philosophies of the world, as Paul put it to the Colossians. Do you understand what I'm saying? It sounds better to be free, doesn't it? And that's really what Jesus preaches uh, to his people. We're going to do a sermon series on the whole Bible, and as, as insofar as we're able, we're going to do it as a whole. We're going to take a look at the whole Bible, not just one verse that we try to make a lot out of, but the sweeping arc of the story, because it's beautiful. It's inexplicable. And I think the story itself is a proof of God, because there's no way the story, there's no way the document could have been faked. We'll talk more about that later. But this morning, I want to arm you uh, with the ability to think for yourselves. I think that's a gift that Jesus provides. If you are my disciple, in other words, if you are willing to exercise a little discipline, the truth will set you free. If you're willing to exercise a little discipline, a little independence, a little courage, the truth will actually set you free rather than entrapping you in nasty ways. If you don't learn the truth skill, then the world will take you away. The world will cut your feet out from under you. You will crash on the reef. You'll lose your balance. Take a breath. Let's just take a moment and let the Holy Spirit work that into us. What I'm thinking is that we, as we invite the Holy Spirit to come, maybe... You know, maybe the Spirit will point to things in life that have been a source of distortion in your thinking, a source of distortion in your experiences. Maybe the Spirit will just point to that thing and say, how about we just relax here for a second? How about we just relax, and instead of getting all wrapped up tight, we just decide to... Find the truth. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and, and just uh, settle upon us. I pray that the spirit of truth would prevail in our fellowship. We don't know it all, Lord, and nobody does. But we do believe in reality. <laughs> we do believe in the big picture. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will lead us to greater understanding. The sort of understanding that, as Jesus said, sets us free instead of beating us down. Holy Spirit, point to things in our life that are causing distortions in us. 
point to the places in which we've been a little, a little too eager just to swallow somebody else's agenda. Set us up for victory here, Lord. Let the Spirit speak. He's the guide.